Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, I'm Seth Abramovich. I'm a senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope. I love pop culture. And welcome back to another edition of It Happened in Hollywood. This is the show that takes you through a lot of fun or interesting moments in Hollywood history. And today we have a doozy. That's right. We have the second part of our two-part interview with Joe Esterhaz, bad boy screenwriter of the 90s. Joe, who would put a knife in the coffee table at a meeting. Ooh. Let's get right to it on It Happened in Hollywood. Okay, so if you were here for the last episode, you've joined us for Joe's journey, which is quite a memorable one. He he had sort of climbed to the top of the screenwriter heap as the screenwriter of films like Flashdance and had commanded some power and a hefty paycheck in Hollywood. Then he went to war with the most fearsome man in Hollywood. Oh, Justin Timberlake. No, Michael Ovitz. Oh, Michael Ovitz. Yes. <laughs> Justin Timberlake, I don't. Well, I think, was still in his pampers at this point. But Ovitz was the head of CAA, and Esther has wanted to leave CAA. Ovitz put his foot down. Whether or not he really threatened his life is up for debate. But Esther has, to his credit, left anyway, went to his old agent at ICM, then had the biggest hit of his career with Basic Instinct, which became a huge international blockbuster, made Sharon Stone a international star, and it punctured the zeitgeist, had a lot of parodies, especially of the interrogation scene where she uncrosses her legs. Didn't they have, like, a full, like, airplane-style parody movie of it? Yes. I think it was Fatal Instinct. No. Wait, Fatal Instinct? Yeah, it was. Because that would be too confusing to be Basic Instinct and then Fatal Attraction and then Fatal Instinct. It was Fatal Instinct with uh, Armando Sante, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes. That classic. And uh, even as recently as, like, this year, Michael Douglas went on The Late Late Show with James Corden and um, parodied a leg uncrossing scene. So it's obviously become part of the Hollywood firmament, that that scene. It's iconic. It's definitely iconic. And, and so Mr. Esterhaus had to like own up to that he didn't write that scene, unfortunately. It's like, got to kill you. He didn't when, write that moment. When you're when you're known for this film and and the the most iconic moment in the film, you didn't actually write yourself. But everything else in the movie is from his sprung from his mind and his 
partnership with director Paul Verhoeven, and uh, the two were basically no one could touch them. They they were the it Shay in Hollywood, and uh, they decided to reteam for another blockbuster. They got the band uh, back together. Erotic pairing. This one didn't go as well. And and you know what? It also took Verhoeven a while to come around to doing it, which I think is interesting because by then he had a lot of power. He didn't want to commit. That's until true. Esther House had a script. That's and Esther true. Esther House is like, well, I don't want to write a script if you're not going to commit. It's one of those things. Yeah, they were sort of playing like a bickering couple, which was a theme of their relationship. But it's true. All they had was an idea. And the idea was strippers in Las Vegas and showgirls. That and sounds like money. I hear a cash register. I think so. And part of what excited them was the idea that they could actually go to Vegas and research, quote unquote, whatever that means. And Esther has explained to us how those research trips went. We hired a woman researcher who worked for the Las Vegas paper who was a great help in terms of pointing us to people and actually being there in the room. And we spoke, I'm guessing, to 50 or so young women about their experiences. It was really valuable. The interviews were valuable. Their experiences were valuable and sometimes horrifying. The rape culture is overwhelming among strippers. Some of the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. There, there was one one I remember that that moved all of us that that didn't get into the movie. The uh, although the, certainly the rape culture got into the movie with a scene with uh, at the, near the end of the picture. But anyway, one was a story about a young woman who went to went with her boyfriend to Mexico, and uh, they were both doing a lot of coke, and he died in bed with her of a stroke. Of course, they had to call the Mexican cops and all of that, and the she just wanted to take him home, drive him home, and the cops wouldn't let her unless she fucked up the police force. Wow. Yeah, I mean, from the sound of it, what he should have produced is, you know, one of the grittiest, saddest depictions of, of sex workers ever committed to film. Right, and it seems like it was going very gritty in that way because uh, part of, I think, what he was trying to convey with the movie is that Las Vegas was turning into some kind of family-friendly thing at that point in history. And everything's glossy on the surface, but underneath there's a real sadness. But meanwhile, as he's making all these mental notes and meeting all these people, he's sort of on a train headed towards Disasterville because the director, Paul Verhoeven, has a very different vision for what he wants to create. And they end up clashing, and what you get is this disastrous camp classic that we know of as Showgirls today. But basically, he doesn't know that at this point, and he sits down and puts together a treatment that Paul likes, and Paul commits to the to the movie, and then he bangs out this script in, again, a pretty short period of time while he's in Hawaii and smoking some very powerful marijuana, which he sort of hints might have led to some of the problems with the script. <laughs> but he writes it, Showgirls, and it gets funding. And they start searching for the near impossible to cast lead role named after his own wife. And so they need to find what a 20 year old woman who is willing to act. Okay, so that's easy. She needs to be able to take off all her clothes. Oh, now it's getting more difficult. And to be able to dance. And she needs to be able to say really ridiculous lines of dialogue like. What kind of classes have you had? I haven't had classes. Then what are you doing here? I'm watching you be a prick. 
So, uh, tall order, but one of the producers, who's actually the the brother of Robert Evans, the legendary producer, his name is Charles Evans, he was pretty enthused about the casting process for Showgirls, and he undertook his own casting hunt in a hotel room. And he discovered a young woman who was very moderately famous for her role on a sitcom called Saved by the Bell, and her name was Elizabeth Berkeley. Charlie Evans was auditioning actresses in New York, which was part of his gig. He could uh, audition actresses. And he called Paul one day and said, I auditioned this young woman, Elizabeth Berkeley, and, and she's just sensational. And I promised her that she could audition for you. And Paul said, what do you mean you promised her she could audition for me? You don't have any right to even promise people that I'm going to audition them. And you probably don't even have a right to audition people. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> she did. And it took place in a hotel room, right? Yes, it did, in New so, York. So what kind of audition are we talking about? A serious one. You want me to specify that any further? Yeah. Fuck you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Elizabeth had to go through the Harvey Weinstein school of uh, auditioning to, yeah. to get her part. Who knows what happened? I yeah. mean, I admire women and all the bullshit they have to go through just to get a part. Yeah. I mean, come on. Elizabeth Berkeley didn't... Um, you know, she probably feels differently now, but at the time, you know, it didn't seem like she felt she was being taken advantage of. I think she was doing this to become a star, and she was very much in, in control. Would it's you say? very meta. You know, she was in character, because these are the kind of things that Nomi does. And yeah, it's a really smart point. Like, that's exactly what happens to her in this movie. She has to do all these humiliating things. And here was this young actress who just wanted to make it, and she saw this as her star vehicle, and she just said yes to what these older men were telling her was going to make her a star. And then, of course, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it didn't exactly do that for her career. So what kind of actresses were they auditioning for this role? They originally had this idea that they were going to have an established A-list actress come in and play the part. So the most obvious name in their head was Madonna. Okay. Who could, you know, handle, quote unquote, the acting, but, you know, the, the, the singing or and or dancing, there was no singing. So. And she already had done Body of Evidence, which was a basic instinct rip, rip off. off. That's right. So she was right in the wheelhouse, but Madonna is no dummy. She took a look at the script and she said, um, I have some notes. And okay. they said, we don't want notes. We just want you to play the part of Nomi Malone. And it didn't work out with her. They also tried Drew Barrymore, Sharon Stone both passed. So they basically finally landed on this nobody, Elizabeth Berkeley. Now, Esther has, you know, he never even laid eyes on her until well into production. He was now with his new wife, Naomi, and they were invited to visit the set. And he said, well, you know, I don't want to shock her too much. So can we make sure there's there's no nudity or sex scenes being filmed that day? So Verhoeven did that, right? Not exactly. He was shooting stuff that was very explicit that day with the, with the girls stripping. And she's just going, oh, my God, this is what the movie's going to be. Elizabeth came out afterwards, and uh, we're talking outside. And she was very sweated up, and it was a hot scene in there. Wasn't she naked? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was steamingly naked. See, we're all we're standing there, the three of us, and my lawyer, Sam Fisher, was there. He insisted on coming down to the set. It's true, I didn't know, I forget. As she was standing there, Sam's glasses steamed up. That's crazy. 
Like his lawyer was like a cartoon dog or something. <laughs> what was that where the, the glasses get steamed up? His eyes pop out of his wah, head. Wah, wah, wee, wah. <laughs> but, you know, if you watch the film, there is an insane amount of really physical, you know, strip dancing going uh, on. Aggressive nudity. Yeah. NC-17. And even when way. you think they can't give enough, some choreographer in the movie starts screaming something like, Dresden! 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 Come on, Dresden! So it's clear this movie is going in two different directions. Maybe Esther House would have benefited, I guess, by being on the set a little bit more, I suppose. Because uh, Verhoeven's definitely doing his over-the-top stuff on it. He was shocked. He was shocked, I guess, at the explicitness of the scene, even though he had written it. Yeah. And I think more than that, he was shocked by Berkeley herself, who was not really what he had in mind when he wrote the character of Nomi. Right. She's playing it as Elizabeth Berserkly. Am, <laughs> am I the first one to come up with that in the last 25 years that this movie's been out? He had questions about her abilities, and he was sort of taken aback that she was suggesting that she should star in his next movie that he hadn't even written yet. That was called Foreplay. Yeah, it was a shock. I guess I may as well say this. It's in my book, but I, when I went back, to Naomi and I were talking to her. We went back to the back to limo and sat in the limo. I said, Jesus Christ, these cats are Japanese bug doll. And then that's the, the main, you know, <laughs> oh the main part in this picture, right? So I grant you now, I say that may have been a harsh assessment. You know, a lot of times we're laughing during these interviews out of, I think, what, nervous laughter? It sounds like nervous laughter. Yeah, especially if Elizabeth Berkeley is listening to this. It's nervous laughter. We don't actually think. We're not, yeah, we don't think you're a, a JFD, <laughs> as, as, as the lingo goes. And it should be said that not all of her reviews were horrible when it came out. The Hollywood Reporter actually liked the movie. And If you had to summarize Showgirls, Seth, how, how would you pitch it to somebody who's never seen it before? Okay, so this mysterious girl ends up in Vegas... She has a weird hair trigger temper. <laughs> right. Um, she has trouble drinking soda at the beginning of it. Yeah. She just she, slams it down. And... French fries go flying all over the place, and occasionally she whips out a switchblade. And uh, <laughs> But she has a lot of ambition, and she wants to be the A-list of the A-list of strippers in Las Vegas. As you do. And uh, she gets an audition at the top, topless performance review in Vegas. Now, was that at the Stardust? I seem to yeah. remember it was at the Stardust, which the, has since been destroyed. The since demolished, but real Las Vegas casino, the Stardust. My grandmother used to go there. That's where she'd stay in Vegas. I can't imagine her watching a volcano-themed strip show. <laughs> Called Goddess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then once she joins that, you know, the company of the Stardust, a uh, vampy superstar played by Gina Gershon, gets her in her sights. Name a bigger icon, quick. <laughs> so they have a sort of a rivalry going on where you can't tell if Gina's character wants to sleep with Nomi or, or is threatened by Nomi. She pushes her down the stairs. Naomi pushes... Pushes, uh, yeah, Gina Gershon, Gershon down, down the stairs, stairs. Whose character loves it and for then some reason. She needed the break. Room. She needed the break, is what she says. <laughs> they meet up in a hospital room, and you think she's going to, you know, Journey Gershon is going to strangle Nomi to death for having ended her career pretty much. And instead she says, you know, I needed a break. And then don't they make out? 
Yeah, they have a long, loving kiss. You're right. I mean, this is the weed. This is the Hawaiian weed. <laughs> this is some pungent, that we were talking uh, about. Some That's a uh, purple Kush. Yeah, the main overriding thing about this movie is both the director and the writer are going further than they did in Basic Instinct. So it's kind of trying to be like, if you liked Basic Instinct, then this is ten times that. But they didn't totally agree on how far they should go. They disagreed on the rating of the film. Now, the other big issue in the course of the filming was Paul very insistently wanted to make it an NC-17 movie. I was dead set against it. And, you know, uh, I was insisted that it be an R-rated movie because I felt that if it was NC-17, there would be such a gigantic glare on it that it would obscure everything else. And I think I was right in retrospect. It was viewed, much of the media viewed it as almost a kind of attempt to bring NC-17 movies into the mainstream. So basically, Verhoeven wanted to make the highest budget, most mainstream porn movie of all time. Right, and it got released, I believe, into 1,200 theaters, which is a very wide release, a very wide release for an NC-17. I mean, there, there aren't that many NC-17 movies that get made anymore or no. released. They just either release them as unrated. It's or... typically the kiss of death for movies, but they were feeling bulletproof. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing with sex. You know, you, there's a certain amount of titillation that you hit the sweet spot and then you go beyond it into this weird showgirls tawdry circus territory and Quit bragging uh, about your sex life <laughs> seth this is not the place i learned everything i know from showgirls thrust it thrust it <laughs> so <laughs> moving right along <laughs> having had this movie in my consciousness for so long and seen it go from the disaster of 1995 a stain on everyone involves career to then being embraced as a sort of camp classic especially by gay people seemed to really love it and it became another kind of rocky horror with a lot of audience participation screenings and things actually esther has attended one of those fan screenings held in the west village you know but in my head i always had the question could a script this ridiculous ever have been written seriously and to be in the room with him and have the opportunity to ask him i, I couldn't resist it i wanted to know if he was serious or if some of these lines were meant to elicit laughter. Tough for me to answer that. You know, maybe and I get back more seriously to my hubris point. Maybe I was trying to shock. Maybe we pushed the envelope so hard on basic that you would just want to keep pushing the envelope, especially working with someone like Paul, whose natural instinct is to go straight out. And, and I guess mine is too. So I too was caught at that screening by how campy some of that stuff was. But it was also played over the top, you know, so... But it's a good point. The the audience, it was it was a really fun evening. They, they, there were like thousands of people there. And the, the audience was an overwhelmingly gay audience. And they knew that movie inside out, you know, and, and all the lines. I mean, clearly, he didn't think he was writing something campy. He obviously cared about writing this. And he is forthcoming enough not to pretend that he meant it to be a comedy in the way that Tommy Wiseau does <laughs> clearly revisit you know in the, Re yeah, in the room tommy wiseau it's clearly that's his masterpiece the song of his soul that he's made now he just goes oh you're supposed to laugh have a good time you know but ezra house you know isn't a charlatan and so he doesn't want to try and convince us that oh yeah it wasn't meant to be funny and campy 
So even with that explanation, I still couldn't get over the fact that certain classic lines in this movie were written seriously. And I had to ask him about one of them. What about the, because it just comes out of nowhere, the puppy chow exchange? <laughs> we're just wondering what yeah, the inspiration the puppy was. puppy chow, eating puppy for, chow. For eating puppy chow. Tell me the context again, please. They're at Spago. It's Crystal and Nomi. And she says, oh, I should only eat brown rice and vegetables. And she's like, do you really you like, like brown that? rice and vegetables? Yeah. You do. Sort of. Really. It's worse than dog food. <laughs> it is. I've had dog food. You have? Mm-hmm. Doggy chow. Oh, I used to love doggy chow. <laughs> I used to love doggy chow, too. It came from the research. One of the dancers we talked to, trying to make it, she didn't have enough money except for puppy chow. And <laughs> it came really from that. So is that thing about the quaalude. Remember that line about the quaalude? Came directly out of the research. I know uh, that too, and there were some lines like the that. The ice cube seemed like it would come out of research too or something. Did, did that come out of research? The whole guy, the ice cubes on the nipples or... Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yeah. Wow. So it's crazy. It all came from the research. So all these iconic moments that people think are just camp and laughable came ripped from the headlines of the life of these Las Vegas showgirls. Yeah, I think he also admitted that he was a little too literal with the research. And he said, you're supposed to absorb the research and then create your own reality. But he just would transpose these stories into the script. Right. And, he was uh, just depicting them <laughs> instead of kind of embellishing them or weaving them into something. Not even depicting, just dropping in like, I ate puppy chow into the script <laughs> with no setup or context. And uh, of course, Verhoeven had his own interpretation of what that meant. And the result is this movie. Most unbelievably, the line to me that also came directly from the research is when Nomi's old boss from the strip club and she have a tearful reunion and this happens. Must be weird not having anybody come on you. Research. So it pays to do your research? Mm, no. <laughs> do less research. Write about what you don't know. A little research and a little imagination, I guess, is the way to go. And one of the uh, downfalls of Showgirls, actually, that the director and the writer have admitted to regretting is that there wasn't some kind of bigger thriller plot to Showgirls. Who killed Nomi's career? <laughs> but speaking of killing Nomi's career, Elizabeth Berkeley's career after this movie was pretty much dead in the water. She was laughed at, jeered at, critics called it, you know, an affront to f feminism, an affront to, to cinema, an affront to humanity. And uh, that's a lot for uh, a young, unknown actress to take on. Just a movie. Just a movie, people. As Esther House has said. She would not talk about showgirls for many years after. I think it was actually too painful for her. Finally, in 2013, in LA, they have screenings at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and they're real fan events where people come out and they often have the director or a star of the film there. And they did that for showgirls. And um, she showed up and she gave a really moving speech. It's on YouTube. And I think you can see the pain that this film caused her, but she also had moved past it. And she sort of talked lovingly about it. And she talked about what it's like to see it with a crowd of people who actually appreciate it. 
1995, it was such a different time where taking risks like that were not embraced. They were, they were laughed at, they were shamed publicly. And um, to be a young girl in the, in the center of that was something that was quite difficult. But I found my own resiliency and my power and my confidence, not only through what I had to find out, but because of you guys. So tonight I want to thank you guys for giving me this gift of truly getting a full circle moment of experiencing the joy with you because you guys and the, and the love that you have for this movie have, have made this the cult film that it is. It was just a misfire for everybody. You know, it's just one of those things. Yeah, you know, it hurt her pretty bad because she was just breaking onto the scene, but it hurt Joe badly also even though he had you know this long career it was it was a pretty big embarrassment and and a humbling moment for him and he remembers the first time he saw it in a theater yeah he snuck in there to see it and uh he saw the audience laughing all the way through the whole thing he knew they were in pretty serious commercial trouble at that point but you know he was uh, beat about i mean he was laughing about that fact too so he sort of tries to keep himself at arm's distance from from the movies he writes at least that's the way he explained it to us, and his credo is, it's just a movie after all. But he was getting a pounding over its depiction of women. L.A. Times had a particularly brutal takedown of, of that through all his films, and uh, he took real issue with that. He felt a lot of his characters, like in Flashdance, the welder who turns into a classical dancer, were uh, great, strong depictions of women. And this movie itself, Showgirls, is actually very feminist because there's the uh, Bechdel test. You know the Bechdel test, Seth? Sure, yeah. It's sort of a benchmark. And if, if a movie has two women in a, one scene together discussing anything besides a man, then it passes the test. And Showgirls passes the test over and over and over again. Okay, sure, they might be talking about dog food and things like that, but just scene after scene is women talking about anything but men and their relationship to men. But uh, yeah, this stuck in Esterhaz's craw, the fact that he might have some issue with women. And like that letter that he wrote to Michael Ovitz that he leaked to the media, he wanted to give the world another message. I put a full-page ad in Variety that I paid for myself that was addressed from Joe Esterhaz to women. And it made the case that there was a real spiritual regeneration in this picture because she turns her back on everything that happened. And uh, the movie itself had a bullseye on it. But when I did that, I think he put a gigantic bullseye on my phone back saying, <laughs> said, who is this asshole to write us about spiritual regeneration where you got scenes in the pool, you know, you've got all of this other stuff, you know. So. In that trade ad, I quote the ad, he says, it's my operating principle as a writer that society will never change if we stick our heads in the sand and pretend that abuses to women, blacks, Jews, and gay people aren't happening every day. So it's just another example of his tenacity to defend himself and to not let things go. I guess it's kind of like the journalist in him that is looking to find the truth in things. So even when it comes off as he can't really help himself, and shoots himself in the foot somehow. One of the great things about Esther House is he always has his integrity intact and his heart's in the right place. Yeah, and he's willing to stand up for himself, whereas a lot of people might have apologized. Exactly, especially screenwriters. So he's a bit older now, and, you know, we spent time with him in his home, and we had a, a really great afternoon with him, and he's 
definitely gotten mellow and philosophical about life. Yeah, I don't know if we were expecting him to ride into the interview on a motorcycle or something and throw a knife at the wall in front of us. And another interesting thing about him is that he uh, he's gotten religious in his old age, sort of uh, found Jesus and has written some spiritual scripts, and uh, it's interesting. Well, one thing, I was 74 years old this year, you know, and then and it is an ageist. Hollywood certainly is. I've been gone. I moved here in 2001, you know, so I, I go back a couple times a year. I still do what I've, what I've done. I write the spec scripts, and I hurl them out, you know, and then see if there's a response to it. Now, many of them have been sold, but they haven't been made. But you know what they say about writers? I've always been very proud of it. They scribble, scribble, and scribble until the pencil stops moving, right? <laughs> so there you have it. Scribble until you die. Hey, what? what? <laughs> until you die? So until the pencil stops oh, moving. Whoops. Didn't say death yet. <laughs> I think that I think that was the, Im- the, the implication. The implication was just you're right until you die. But uh, anyway, it was a huge honor to meet Joe Esterhaz, the legend. His name looms large over Hollywood history, and it was so cool to spend an afternoon with him. I think he embodied a certain style of cinema that just doesn't exist anymore. And I think in the era of Me Too, we're going to see it less and less, which is just this balls out, excuse the expression, embracing of just sex and violence. And well, maybe that never goes out of style. And when they do try to do it, it's like Fifty Shades of Grey. Esterhaus himself said it was a piece of shit. So, <laughs> hey, hey, let's that's not... what he said. We uh, can find it. Find the quote. It's a piece of shit. It's a really bad movie. Okay, maybe he did say that. Even more than that, he represents writers standing up for their own worth. And whether that means you're a journalist, a short story writer, you're just writing at home every day when you get home from work. I think if you could take any lesson from him, it's to believe in yourself and and not to let anyone push you around. So anyway... Thanks for listening and uh, swipe up, subscribe, all that stuff. You know how to do it, right? You listen to podcasts. And we'll see you in Hollywood. Save us the aisle seat. No, that's not ours. (laughs) That's not our sign-off? No. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.